Please open your Bibles to the 127th Psalm, Psalm 127. This is the second Psalm of Ascents that we will study. And I want to draw your attention that last week we got out a little early, so please bear that in mind. <laughs> he gives and he takes away. Okay. Uh, so it's only, a, it's only a five verse psalm. How much can there be here? Well, I think we'll see there is plenty of meat and sinew here. Let's read Psalm 127. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go, to go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Psalm 127, the sovereign blessings of the Lord. In this psalm, Solomon, this is one of two psalms attributed to him in the Psalter. Solomon, using much of the wisdom language that, that we're used to, you know Solomon wrote most of the, psalm, of the Proverbs, sorry, in the book of Ecclesiastes, and, and two of those themes show up here, this blessing and the way of wisdom, and the way of blessing, and, and the word that occurs over and over in Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity, says the preacher. This, this has a very much a Solomonic feel to it, even if the title didn't give us his identity as author. And in the psalm, Solomon shows God's sovereignty over all areas of life, the futility of trying to prosper, trying to succeed apart from him, the futility of trusting in your own wisdom, your own ability, your own plans. And he teaches us that it's the sovereign blessings of the Lord that are final and determinative. The psalm breaks down into two parts. There's a typo here. It's sovereign blessings in the city and point to sovereign blessings in the home. Sovereign blessings in the city and sovereign blessings in the home. So let's dive into the first two verses. Sovereign blessings in the home in the city. And here we get a pair of contrasts. Unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And it is in vain that you rise up early and go to late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives his beloved sleep. And so Solomon lists three activities in the community in which God's sovereign blessing, God being behind are essential. Building a home, protecting a city, and earning a living. These are the endeavors of everyday life. What's interesting, it may not be immediately obvious to pick up, is this is a psalm of ascents. And last week, we talked about how these are pilgrim psalms. Three times a year, all the able-bodied men in Israel were required by the law, Deuteronomy 16, 16, to go to, Israel, to, go to Jerusalem to observe the Feast of Booths and Weeks and Passover. And, and so as they were traveling, these were psalms of ascent. Jer Jerusalem is on top of Mount Zion, surrounded by other hills. And so from whatever direction you come, you are ascending up into 
the city of Jerusalem. And so this is the pilgrim song. There's another, there's another factor here that I think is significant. When we look at building a home, and really the idea here is of shelter, this is a play on words that may be lost to us. In 2 Samuel 7, 4 to 17, you don't need to turn there. If you remember, that's where the Davidic covenant is found. And the context of the Davidic covenant is that David wants to build a house for God. And he calls Nathan to him and he says, the Lord has blessed me. The Lord has given me peace from my enemies. He has solidified my kingdom. Now that the ark should no longer dwell in a tent, let me build a house for the Lord. But the Lord's response to David is, you're not going to build a house for me, David. I am going to build a house for you. Because the play on words of a house, meaning a building, and house, meaning a dynasty or a heritage, works both in Hebrew and in English. So David wants to build God a house. God says, no, I'll build you a house. Now your descendant, your son, he will build me a house. That's Solomon. And so this phrase, unless the Lord builds a house, almost certainly calls to mind that Davidic covenant. The fact that Solomon was the one prophesied to build the temple, the house of God. It also ties the two themes together. In case you're wondering, well, how do we go from talking about building a home and guarding a city and and working to children? Well, it's the Davidic covenant, that thought of that wordplay on house and house. House, a dwelling place. House, descendants, that ties the two themes of this psalm together and makes sense of it. It's entirely possible, I was talking to Pastor Daniel, that Solomon wrote this while the temple was under construction. That would add some new flavor. As the pilgrims are coming to Jerusalem, as they're coming to see the great and wonderful house of God, which the queen of Sheba marveled at. Solomon, penning this psalm, says, make no mistake. It's not by our wisdom. It's not by our might. It's not by our wealth. It's not by our skill. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. This this house stands because the living God is behind us. And arguing from the heavy to the light, then that works for us and our houses as well. The homes we try to build, the families that we try to build, the place in the community we try to find for ourselves. No amount of work and effort can replace the blessing of God. There are some people who tried to build a tower once, and the Lord frustrated it, didn't he? He brought it to nothing. And the Bible is full of those reversals where people who trust in themselves, trust in their ability, trust in their strength, trust in their might are brought low. And Solomon here is saying, despite the fact that we're building or we've built, we don't know when he wrote this, if it was during the construction or after, but for the pilgrims coming year after year to marvel at this city, to marvel at this temple, the the point is clear. Don't be impressed by this building. Be impressed by the God who stands behind this building. Don't praise ourselves and our might and our wisdom and our ability. Trust in God. And the point for us is is made as well as, as we build a shelter around us that we need to trust in the Lord and not in our own devices, not in our own strength. The second contrast is protecting a city. And here we're looking at security. Security. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And again, Jerusalem had mighty walls. Solomon had fortified them. And you might come to Jerusalem and think, man, what a secure city. You're on your psalm of ascent. You're ascending the hill. If any place on earth is safe, surely it's Jerusalem with its great walls and army. Well, Nebuchadnezzar proved that wrong, didn't he? No, unless the Lord is watching over a city, 
its watchmen stay awake in vain. And again, this is a rebuke from the, from the heavy to the light, from the greater to the lesser. If it's true with, with this, the capital city of God's chosen people on earth, where his glory dwelt, if that city could fall, if he were to not sustain it, then how much more is our security in his hands? And, and, and the, secure, the things we place our security in are not wrong if ultimately we're placing our security in God. I lock my door at night. But I'm also well aware that unless the Lord is protecting my home, unless the Lord is protecting Martinsdale, unless the Lord is protecting our country, our continent, there's, there's no, no effort on our part that can avail to accomplish anything. The temptation is always to trust in our own strength, to trust in our securities, to trust in what we can do. And again and again and again, God calls his people to trust in him. So here's Solomon, this great and powerful king, no one wiser than him, no one greater in glory than him, except the flowers in the field, Jesus said. But no one wiser or greater. And he's telling these pilgrims coming to Jerusalem year after year after year after year, don't be fooled. The greatness of this house is the greatness of the God who built it. The, the security of this city is not the security of these walls. God could knock these walls down flat. He's done something similar in your history, Israel. No, it's the sovereign Lord who protects his people. Psalm 34, 7 says this, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. The Bible's also filled with stories of people without any apparent defense being protected. You think of Daniel in the lion's den. The Lord is guarding and protecting you. You are invincible and invulnerable. And if the Lord has decided to give you over to destruction, there is no wall too big, there's no defense too great that will avail. Time and time again, the Bible makes that point. And thirdly, Solomon turns his attention to earning a living, sustenance, We've seen shelter, security, now sustenance. In vain you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. And people will work long hours to try to get ahead. We talk about the rat race. And Solomon's pointing to this, the vanity, the foolishness, the, the vapor. It's like grabbing at the wind. It's like soap bubbles of, of thinking, I'm going to do this, and you pour yourself into it, and you get up early, and you go to bed late, and you're full of anxiety and nervousness because you're trusting in yourself. You're trusting in your own machinations, your own plans and schemes, your own purposes. The contrast here is anxiety and toil without the Lord, and peace and rest with his blessing. You know, a, a spirit of anxiety and fear is a symptom of judgment, Listen to this curse God promises Israel in Deuteronomy 28, 65 to 67. If Israel is unfaithful, the Lord will give you a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of life. In the morning you shall say, if only it were evening. In the evening you will say, if only it were morning because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sight of your eyes shall see. And people are running the rat race. They're, they're getting up early. They're, they're burning the midnight oil. There's nothing wrong with work. Solomon here is not condemning work, diligence and work. But rather, it's work that doesn't have God in view. It's, it's, it's autonomous work. It's autonomous building. It's autonomous protection. 
He says, you can, you can work all day. You'll still be overcome with anxiety and sleepless and anxious. And, or you can have peace and rest. He gives his beloved sleep, which is, by the way, another tie-in to Solomon. Solomon had a special name that the Lord gave him or that his parents gave him because of the Lord. The text isn't entirely clear, but in 2 Samuel 12, 24 to 25, we read, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and she called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Jedidiah is the word here translated beloved, beloved of the Lord. Solomon, remembering this name, because the Lord loved him, he gives his beloved sleep. He gives Jedediah sleep. I mean, Solomon, again, is telling the readers the reason he's able to sleep at night is not because he's got great walls and great wealth and a great temple. It's because he's trusting in the Lord. That, that's how you can sleep well at night. It's not the new alarm system. It's trusting in the Lord. And so everything in, in, in the community depends on the sovereign blessings of God. Everything. The building of homes, the protecting of the community, the earning of a living, all depend upon the Lord. The psalmist says he will go down, let me read it, Psalm 4, 8. I thought I could quote it, but I cannot. Psalm 4, 8, the psalmist says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. You only, you alone. Only God gives peace. And our world has got people running around talking to therapists and, and seeking peace, and seeking security. And they're not going to find it in this world. No matter how much money's in the bank, no matter how many promotions they get, no matter how many guns are in the safe, they're not going to have peace. God alone offers peace. Jesus, speaking to the multitudes, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest and peace. That, that, that alone is found in God. He gives his beloved sleep. You want to sleep like a baby, or as my wife says, when you have kids, you don't keep that expression. She said, you want to sleep like a husband. That's, that's more accurate, right? Because um, our babies get up at night, but she said, you, know, you, you want to sleep like a husband, um, you need to trust in the Lord. You need to trust in the Lord. Okay. We've looked at sovereign blessings in the city. Now let's turn our attention to sovereign blessings in the home. Sovereign blessings in the home. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. I want to look at two points here from this passage. The first, God is sovereign over the womb. This, this continues the theme. Unless the Lord builds a house, unless the Lord washes a city, the Lord is sovereign over the womb. And, and this can be hard for us to accept. We live in a, in a culture that because of technology and the things we can do with a push with a button, we more and more expect to have our every whim gratified. Customer's always right. You can get it your way. And we have unprecedented reproductive technology, both to, to stop the birth of children and to, to invite the birth of children. We're not sovereign over it, but we have unprecedented options. 
and it can give us the appearance and it can give us the lie that we can actually control this thing. We can decide how many kids we're going to have and we can decide when we're going to have them and we can decide when we're not going to have them. And this is all under our control. And, and the first thing we see here is children are a heritage from the Lord. From the Lord. The fruit of the womb or reward. They are grace gifts. God, God is sovereign over the womb. And this can lead to much frustration and, and, and vexation because that means then that he does not owe us children. He does not owe us children. He's not obligated to give them to us. He is not a God who exists solely to satisfy our desires. And that can be hard. That can be really hard. But time and time again, the Bible says the Lord opened her womb to conceive. The Lord grants life. And we can do all the things we can do to invite children and we can see doctors, but again, the Lord stands behind this where he doesn't. He does not owe us children. And this can be hard. This can be really hard. You think of Job. In a single day, all of his children struck dead with the collapse of a house. Right? The Lord took all of his children from him. I think that's probably worse to have children and lose them than to not have them at all. And Job doesn't curse God. The Lord has done him no wrong. He says, the Lord gave, the Lord took away, blessed be the name of the Lord. His wife encourages him to curse God and die. He says, shall we not receive from the Lord good and not at all? That doesn't mean there isn't suffering. That doesn't mean there isn't suffering in this. Job mourns and grieves. Before the birth of Zadok, the Lord granted us a child and the child died. In a miscarriage, we grieved, we mourned. God did us no wrong. He did us no wrong. It was a tragedy. Jesus wept in front of Lazarus's tomb. I take great comfort in the fact that our God cares about such things. But he did us no wrong. And we can feel that we have a right to these things as our culture more and more says, you can do what you want. You can have it your way. You can be in control. And we, we I'm sure, all know people who've learned we are not in control. We would do well to learn that ourselves. This can be very difficult, which brings us to the second point, though God does invite our prayers. You see, on the one hand, God alone is in control of the giving of children. He stands behind that. And yet, I can think of no category in the Bible that the God looks upon with greater compassion, greater love, and mercy than those who are barren, those who are struggling. I, I, I can't think of a single more common biblical request of women to the Lord than, oh Lord, grant me a child. So on the one hand, God's sovereign over this. On the other hand, this is real suffering and the Lord has a real heart for it. I mean, think about it. Time and time again, who does the scripture say the Lord's heart is towards? The widow, the orphan, the barren. The Bible is littered with stories of women who didn't think they could conceive and the Lord came and he opened their womb. Think of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Think of Rachel and Leah. Think of Hannah, Samuel's mother. Think of Manoah's wife, the mother of Samson. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. I mean, when, when something keeps showing up in the Bible again and again and again and again as a theme, we should pay attention. God cares about this greatly, and it's real suffering. So, sometimes when we're suffering, our suffering isn't real suffering. You know, there can be the suffering of, but I wanted the red one. I wanted the big chocolate chip cookie. And you're upset. But it's hard to really sympathize with that type of suffering because why does it matter to you? But here's something where people, when they pour, oh, turn in your Bibles to, to 1 Samuel. 
I want you to see this. This is real suffering. Suffering that God says his heart is moved towards. Something that God cares about. Something that God grieves over and empathizes with. First Samuel chapter 1. This is the story of Samuel's conception and birth. It's Mother Hannah, godly woman. And, and when we turn away from here, keep your thumb here. We're going to turn back to 1 Samuel a little later. So, so when you turn away, you can, you can keep a bookmark here or something. But let's pick it up in verse, oh, let's start in verse 1. There's a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Elkanah the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice, because the law commanded it. So the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Is God sovereign over these things? And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it went year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorsteps of the temple of the Lord, and she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman and Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. And then went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Now, if that text doesn't validate and put on display the great sorrow and suffering and vexation and anxiety that can come when a woman wants a child, when a couple wants a child, and the Lord in his time says, no, not now. I don't know what does. That, it's, it's real suffering. 
It's not, it's not getting upset because you didn't get the large chocolate chip cookie. This is real suffering. And do you notice God's compassion for, the, for, for Hannah? His kindness towards her, his heart towards her. God is sovereign, but he cares. Secondly, back to Psalm 127, but keep your thumb in 1 Samuel 1. Children are a blessing. Children are a blessing. And I underline the word are because I think, if I'm not wrong, our culture in the West here, even to some degree creeping into the church, doesn't truly believe this. Doesn't, doesn't really believe this. We're, we're oftentimes like old Mr. Rutherford. I don't know if you've heard the story of old Mr. Rutherford, but he was famous for loving children. He'd have candy in his pockets. He'd give it out when he'd see them. He always loved watching them and delighted in it. He was reputed for loving children. One day, he was, he was pouring his sidewalk and smoothing it out. They'd just laid some concrete in front of his house, and he was smoothing it out and smoothing it out and getting it just right. And just after he finished, the school got out. And the kids coming down the street, they left tracks in it. And he lost his temper, Mr. Rutherford, and he was yelling and screaming and cursing. And one of his neighbors looked out the window and said, Rutherford, I thought you loved kids. Which Rutherford said, I love them in the abstract, not in the concrete. And I, and I think that's oftentimes the case with us. The picture of children. Oh, we love that. Love the picture of kids. But I, I think the evidence is clear that in the practical reality, we have, as a culture, changed our mind about children radically from anything that has come before in human history. But more of that later. Children are a blessing. Notice that. The language is clear. Behold. Pay attention. Listen up. Children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. These are grace gifts. These are good things. This is not unclear language. Children are good. Children are good. And I just want to unpack this with four points. First, children are a blessing without exception. Without exception. In every circumstance. It doesn't say children of believers are a blessing. It doesn't say that at all. In fact, the Lord in Genesis 17:20 blesses Ishmael with children. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. So children are a blessing even for pagans. It's a blessing. Children are a blessing whether you get the gender you want or not. There's, there's a whole gender side going on um, in, in Asia and China as, as couples who only want one child want a boy and they're just aborting the females. No, children are a blessing. They're, they're a blessing whether they're special needs children or not. They're a blessing whether whatever factor you want to throw in. I'll, I'll, give you an, I'll give you an example. They're a blessing even if their conception is as twisted and bizarre as Tamar and Judah. You know that story? You can read it in Genesis. Tamar marries Judah's son. And he displeases the Lord, and the Lord kills him. And so Judah gives Onan to her as a husband. And Onan doesn't want to father children for his dead brother. He doesn't want to split up the inheritance. And so the Lord kills him. And then after two of his sons have died after marrying Tamar, Judah doesn't want to give her his third son. He says, uh, just wait a while. I'll find somebody for you. If you're not familiar, this is a bizarre story. So Tamar goes up 
north, where Judah's going to take the, the cattle and the goats and the sheep to be sheared, and she dresses up like a temple prostitute. And she sets up a shop in front of a little tent, and Judah comes by, and Judah pays her, and he sleeps with her. She, she pretends to be a prostitute, and her father-in-law hires her, mistakenly thinking she is a prostitute. And thus, Perez is conceived. Perez is in the line of David. No Perez, no David, no Jesus. Even children born in unideal circumstances, might we say, are a blessing. They are, without exception, a blessing. And if ever we think of them otherwise, we are wrong. We are wrong. Just, just get that. If you ever hear news of a pregnancy, you say, oh no. You are disagreeing in your heart with the word of God. They are a blessing, without exception. Next, children are a blessing in your youth. Notice that. Verse 4. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. The Bible distinguishes at times between children of youth and, and what Genesis 37.3 says of, of Joseph being Jacob's son of his old age. Children of youth. And again, we, we live in a culture that is pushing marriage further and further forward. The average first marriage of a white female is 27 or 28 now. That's the average and then they're pushing kids past that because, again, we live in a day and age where we can separate those two things. Prior to the 1950s and the advent of affordable, reliable birth control, marriage and children were pretty much inseparable unities. Wherever marriage occurred, children generally followed in short order. I mean, there were exceptions, but you understood these things go together. But now in our world, we've, we've got marriages without kids and kids without marriage. We've completely separated the two. And as a result, it's getting pushed back and back and back because we live in a culture that tells you to celebrate and enjoy your youth, your freedom, we live in a culture that has created the concept of free time and leisure time, which is all a product of the Industrial Revolution, which is not a bad thing, but the first time ever, we've got disposable income, we've got time to do what we want with, and we start pushing it off. And, and you can get wisdom from, from people, um, in, encouraging people to, to delay and postpone, and, and what, whatever choices you come down with. And, and let me be clear at this point. My, my goal in, in unpacking these verses is not to give any practical instruction to anybody, not telling anybody what to do. There are a lot of complex options, a lot of complex and difficult and deep theological decisions that we got to work through as we think through you know, birth control and whether we're to use it, and if so, what methods, and, and thinking through all that. My concern is simply that we've drunk the cultural Kool-Aid. We have shifted radically from the starting point the Bible assumes. And if we have shifted radically as we think through those questions, we will necessarily come up with wrong answers. Conversely, if we can get our hearts in line so that we can celebrate what's said here, I'm quite confident as we think through those issues, as each couple prayerfully works through them, you'll, you'll, the Lord will give you wisdom. You'll figure it out. So let me be clear. I am not prescribing any course of action other than perhaps some self-examination and where necessary, some repentance. That's the only course of action I'm calling for. But here, children of one's youth are, are said to be a blessing. They're a blessing. You know, I say this in my premarital when I talk to young couples. If you're not ready for kids, you're not ready for marriage. 
you're not ready for kids, you're not ready for marriage. I'm not saying you've got to, right out of the gate, try to have a kid. What I'm saying is it could happen, right? There's no guarantee. We don't have the sovereign control. That was the point before. We're not in control of this. We can influence it. We can, we can take measures that will encourage or discourage children, but we're not in control. And if you're going to get married and aren't conceptually ready for the possibility of a child, you're not ready for marriage. These, these things go together. For thousands of years, they've been inseparable. It's only in the last 50 years we've got the idea, no, we can take control and we can push this stuff around. They're a blessing in one's youth. And, and this was something that I had to personally repent of. When, when Serena and I first got married, I was in seminary. Um, she was working as a public school teacher. She was my sugar mama while I was, uh, <laughs> while I was in school. And, and my motives for using birth control, I became convicted, were corrupt. I'm not for a second saying, don't hear me say that there's no legitimate motives, no legitimate reasons to use birth control. I'm just saying mine, I became convicted, were corrupt. They, they were entirely um, I wanted to walk by sight and not by faith. Um, my initial reasons were I wanted to finish school. I had plans, things I wanted to do. I wanted to get through seminary. A child would mess that up, mess my plans up. A child of my youth would not be a blessing, was what I was thinking. And then when I approached the nine-month mark to graduation, which is what I had originally told myself, that's when we'll wait till, I found myself hesitating further because what if I don't get a job right out of seminary? And, and, and one day, God in his kindness and his spirit convicted me that what I was really thinking was this. Until I can see right in front of me how I'm going to provide for, how I'm going to deal with this, I'm not going to do it. Because, of course, I could have a job lined up at a seminary and lose it, couldn't I? There's no amount of security that I could think I have that couldn't be stripped from me in a moment. And here I was in my heart calling something that God called a blessing, calling something that God called good a curse. And for me, I had to repent. I had to repent. And then the Lord taught us as we waited over two years to get pregnant that I'm not in control. I learned that lesson. Not in control. They are a blessing. And, and, let, me, and let me just say one other thing to challenge this notion that we have. What God made in the garden is good. Can we, can we agree on that? He calls it very good. And what we have in the garden is a, is a man and a woman coming together with, with no birth control, it's good. And I'm not saying that's the only option. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is we can't call that bad. We can't call that unwise. We can't call that imprudent. Whatever choices we make, that is good. It's very good. And, and we dare not disagree with that. We dare not disagree with that. Next, they're, they're a blessing without exception. They're a Blessing in your youth. And third, we see that many are better than few. This is almost certainly going to be the most controversial and most difficult point. It's also, I think, the clearest in this passage. I, I worded that specifically. Many are better than few. I'm not entirely sure what many is. I'm not going to give you a number. But Obviously, that's what a full quiver means. The contrast is if you're going to go defend a city, if you're going to go hunting, it's better to have a full quiver than, an, than a partially empty one, right? And we're not, we're not given numbers, but whatever that means, fullness is better than non-fullness. Many is better than few. 
It's what it says. And again, this isn't prescribing action for anybody. But what it does mean is we can't disagree with this in our hearts without sitting in judgment on the wisdom of God and sinning ourselves. If you disagree that many is better than few, then I think repentance is necessary, whatever you've chosen to do. We, we aren't free to sit in judgment on what God has said and say, well, I disagree. I don't think that's good. I mean, that, that's, what the, that's what the serpent did in the garden, folks. Did God really say? <laughs> He's keeping a blessing from you. You want to eat the fruit. Having many kids will be a curse. It'll slow you down. It'll destroy your life. <laughs> you don't want that. Again, not telling anybody what to do. Just saying, that's what this says. We're not free to disagree with it. And our culture radically disagrees with it. Radically disagrees with it. Let me give you some statistics. Got these from USA Today and some other news sites. Um, we are in a downward trend. The, the population fertility rate of the United States is the lowest it has ever been since they began recording it in 1906. But by way of, of understanding, for every female in the culture, she needs to give birth to 2.1 children over the course of her life on average if the population is simply going to maintain. That's, that's maintenance rate, 2.1. The, the point one accounts for those who don't marry, those who die prematurely. 2.1 is necessary simply to keep the population level. Now understand, our country has been growing in population up until recently. It takes 2.1 children per woman to give the generation to replace itself. US, U.S. birth rates have now been below replacement level since 2007. As of last year, a separate CDC analysis shows an American woman will give birth to an average of 1.8 children over her lifetime. By the way, the reason that number is so high, you can thank the immigrants, the people who come from the South because they're having babies, way more than we are. The number would be significantly lower if you didn't factor in the illegal immigrants. You can, you can, there's something to be thankful for right there. There's something to be thankful for. Children are a blessing in whatever way they come? Or do we disagree with God? Fertility rates across the entire world are all heading downward in ways that are somewhat mystifying, USA Today writes. Italy, for example, has a fertility rate of 1.4. Only 14% of its population is under 15. 21% is 65% and older. Its population is flat. Japan has a 1.4 fertility rate, with 13% of its population under 15, 24% of its population, a quarter of Japan's population, are elderly. A few years ago, for the first time in recorded history, sales of adult diapers beat sales of child diapers in Japan. Now, not, And this is mainly... A problem in first world countries, industrialized countries. The great irony is those countries that are wealthiest, those countries that are richest, those countries that are most prosperous speak that they can't afford to have kids. That is the great irony. Homes have never been larger than they are. Incomes have never been larger than they are. Families have never been smaller than they are. I'm not prescribing any course of action. I'm just saying clearly, clearly, we have shifted radically, not a little shift, but a big shift from what God has said is good. From what God has said is good. To give you a note of comparison, 
our birth rate now is half what it was in 1957. Half. We're having half as many babies in our country as we did in 1957. And I only bring that out to make the point, something has shifted. And, my, and my, to repeat what I said, my concern is that we examine ourselves to see if we've drunk that Kool-Aid, if we've taken in the cultural lie. Because if we have, then we will make errors in our thinking through choices in our families. Choices I think need to be made, that need prayer. So I'm only calling for a recentering of our heart and our mind. Can we agree with what this psalm says? Can we agree that a full quiver is a great blessing? It's a good thing. Lord may not give it, but it's a good thing when it happens. So let's, let's, why is that? Let's, let's unpack this a little further. First, there's the creation mandate. The creation mandate. Before God gave the law to a specific group of people, he said to the man and woman in the garden in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now, I've heard plenty of people tell me, that's done. You can just put a check mark next to that, Done. I don't think so, because it gets repeated again and again and again in the Bible. Let's see, Genesis 9-1, Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Abraham, the covenant that God makes with Abraham, I am going to multiply you greatly. Jacob, I am God Almighty, Genesis 35-11, be fruitful and multiply. Leviticus 26, 9, a promise to the people that if they will be faithful, I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you. The assumption, of course, being this is a blessing. This is something they want. Deuteronomy 6, 3, hear, O Israel, and be careful to do my commandments that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly. Jeremiah 23, 3, speaking of the exile. They shall be fruitful and multiply. And probably even more striking, this is the instructions Jeremiah gives to Israel as they're about ready to go into captivity, into poverty, into slavery, and into a foreign land. If ever there was a time to say, this would be imprudent. You're slaves, you're in an uncertain situation, you're poor, don't have kids. Here's what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 29, 4-6. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles, whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. In slavery, poverty, and a foreign land. Do not decrease. Multiply. It's the same language. Paul picks this up in the New Testament. But no, sorry, Malachi. Malachi 2.15. This is at the close of the Old Testament. So if you're thinking creation mandate, that was fulfilled a long time ago. That doesn't apply. Listen to this. Malachi 2.15. Did he not make them one? He's speaking of marriage. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Close of the Old Testament, creation mandate apparently is not fulfilled. New Testament. What sphere does Paul say women will experience and live out their salvation most fully? Yet she'll be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness. 1 Timothy 2.15. We looked at that a few months ago. This is the sphere, not in church leadership, but in, in, in bringing people into the world, rearing children, that's where women generally are going to 
live out and experience and be sanctified. Or listen to this instruction of Timothy for younger widows. He doesn't want them put on the widow's list. If you're a widow and you're under 65, you don't get put on the widow's list. I would have younger widows marry and bear children. The apostle Paul wants young widows to have children. And you've got to ask yourself, is that just Paul's desire for widows? Is that just something Paul wants for widows? Well, the rest of you, that's up to you. No, Paul wants them because he, he knows it's a blessing. He knows God's commanded it in general to all peoples. Titus 2, 3 to 5, older women likewise are to be reverent behavior, not slanderers, slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. More is better than few. The creation mandate still applies. It's still God's desire that we be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. Now, let me give you a frame of reference. I told you I wasn't going to give you a number for how many is many, but I want you to turn back to 1 Samuel. Okay? I want to wrap up the story of Hannah. Because Hannah, after she is given a child and she comes and devotes him to the Lord, his name's Samuel, she prays an exultant prayer to God. And you've got to understand as you're reading this, you as the reader are meant to be rejoicing. You're meant to be going, yes, yes, as Hannah lays out the salvation of God. Verse 1, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. But the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven. To which you're supposed to go, amen, hallelujah. And most of us in the culture go, oh dear, no. So I don't know how many a full quiver is, but apparently sevens, yes. You can't read this without escaping that conclusion. We're meant to think that is wonderful. It's glorious. Isn't our God great? He gives the barren woman seven. And I am not in the slightest bit being sarcastic or hyperbolic. That's what this says, and we're meant to cheer. However many children we have, however many children the Lord gives us, we're meant to see this as a great thing. Turn back a few pages to Ruth. Ruth 4. There's a wedding in, in Ruth. I was joking with Jake Hopper yesterday. I got the joy of presiding over a wedding and, 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 and asking if anyone had, had prayed the, the blessing of, of Ruth and Boaz on his marriage. Um, and we had a chuckle over that. But they, they, the, the community comes together when, when Ruth and Boaz get married and they pray this amazing prayer. Verse 11 of chapter 4, Ruth. Because you might think, well, Abraham and Noah, they're kind of patriarchs and, you know, they're special cases. Look, we know that they're going to give birth to the grandfather of David. We know that they are directly in the Davidic line. No one at the time of this marriage knew that. These are just normal, everyday folks. Ruth and Boaz. Verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, 
We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Now, if I'm not mistaken, that's saying what it took Rachel and Leah to do, bear 12 sons to Jacob plus daughters. May this woman, may the Lord use her to do that to you. That's what it says. It's a blessing. And, and Ruth and Boaz don't go, ah, don't curse us. They don't. May you act worthily in Ephrathath and be renowned in Bethlehem and may your house be like the house of Perez. Whom Timor there is t there's Perez, born of Judah and Tamar, because there's a blessing. May your house be like the house of Perez who Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. We are not free to disagree with God when he says something is good, when he says something is a blessing, when he says something is wonderful. We're not free to disagree with him. I'm not telling anyone what to do. I am telling you what you have to rejoice and what you have to value because God's word says that. And your culture and the people around you will disagree. The culture says it's a boy for me and a girl for you and praise the Lord we're finally through. The culture is celebrating the wrong thing. Finally, point three here, they are never a curse. They are never a curse. Never a curse. And I fear that, that when we respond to, to children as a curse, we mock God's good gift. And we do it in subtle ways. We had a close call last month, quite a scare. Am I not wrong in that's implying something bad almost happened, right? So by implication, what this psalm says is a blessing I have redefined into a curse. When I say, we had a close call last month. Phew, dodged a bullet there. That's, that's what we're doing. We are calling God's good gifts curses. Why'd you take us out of Egypt? If it's a starve... Why'd you give me a viper and a stone when I asked for bread? They're never curses. Never, never, never. And we dare not betray this. And ever look at a child, even if it's born to Tamar and Judah, it's a blessing. It's a blessing. Finally, they bring strength and honor. They bring strength and honor. And that's, that's seen in the last verse of Psalm 127. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. He won't be put to shame. They bring strength and honor, especially when they're born in your youth, because then when the picture is when this man gets older, more feeble, less able to defend himself, he's got his sons and daughters around him. The gates was where disputes took place. Now, I want to I add one qualification in here. Children come into the world of blessing, but the book of Proverbs makes it clear they may not stay that way. I think another reason why frequently people don't want to have children is our culture, simultaneously with rejecting children as a good thing, has also rejected parenting. And the Proverbs are full with, with words like the following. Proverbs 10.1, the Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes his father glad, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. They come into the world of blessing, 
But depending on how we steward them, they may not stay that way. In fact, the very next Psalm, Psalm 128, we won't be looking at it, goes on to talk about how it takes a godly man who fears the Lord. Then his wife will be like a fruitful vine. Then his children will be like olive plants around his table. How you parent them, how you steward them is essential. You, you may end up cultivating a curse. And that happens. And we see it. And we see children who don't look very much like a blessing. And we think, I don't want that. Fair enough. That can happen. That doesn't mean that the gift is bad. God only gives good gifts. Proverbs 23, 24. The father of the righteous will rejoice greatly. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. And then, so when you think of this notion of standing in the gates, not being ashamed, the notion of, the opposite of shame is pride, honor, dignity. There's another question I want to ask. Do we honor those families that are larger? Do we, do, do, is it true in the church at least? Okay, maybe not in the culture. At least in the church where you've got full quivered families, whatever that means, that they're honored. They can hold their head up high. Or do we grumble and talk and gossip and make it weird? You know, that's the thing. A comedian, Jim Gaffigan, says, you know, big families are kind of like waterbed stores. They used to be everywhere, and now they're just kind of weird. <laughs> Let that not be true in the church. If God has chosen to bless the barren with seven, let us rejoice, not hold it in contempt. Proverbs 27, 11, helping, I think, to understand and explain what's going on here. Be wise, my son, make my heart glad that I may answer him who reproaches me. So in this last verse of Psalm 127, we do move on to parenting. The assumption here is these children that God has given were raised properly. Be wise, my son, make my heart glad that I may answer him who reproaches me. So this guy's standing in the gates. He's got his family around him, and they are so orderly. They are so godly that reproaches don't stick to him. You, you know, you've seen that. You've met families that are just godly, and, and you see the fruit of, of what the parents are doing. Or Jesus puts it this way in Luke 7, 35. Wisdom is justified by all her children. I mean, think about it. This is why... The qualifications for an elder center on the home. So you want to be an elder, huh? How are you doing loving your wife? How are you doing raising your kids? How are you doing welcoming people into your home with hospitality? That, that's the measuring stick we're to measure on, in part at least. Because, of course, the final point is that God wants to sanctify us through this. In training up our children, the Lord trains us. It's work. It's hard work. It's sanctifying work. Blessing doesn't always mean easy. Blessing doesn't always mean cakewalk. Blessing means knowing God more fully, having your joy in him increase, but it might mean getting up at three in the morning to change a diaper. It might mean living in a less expensive home than you'd like, driving a slightly less car than you like. At the end of the day, the question comes, what do we value as a blessing? What God says is a blessing or what our culture says is a blessing? Will we adopt the wisdom of the world? View God's good gifts like rocks and serpents? Or will we in our hearts say amen? Lord, if this is what your word says, help us to believe it. Let me repeat again as we close. I'm, I'm not prescribing any course of action. I know that each of your situations are difficult and different and individual. I know much wisdom is needed. I'm just saying, before you think through it and think through it prayerfully, make sure your heart can amen and echo what the scripture says is good. 
dare not to disagree with the living God. Dare not to sit in judgment on what he has called a blessing. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. Lord, give us the faith to believe what your word says. Give us the faith to believe in the goodness of the gift of children. Give us the faith to honor those who have them. Give us the faith, Lord, to repent where we need to repent. And give us the wisdom to work through the difficult, complicated issues in our homes as we make choices, as we think through these things ourselves and what that means for us. Give us wisdom and grace there as well. Oh, Lord God, you are so good to us. You give so many good gifts. And the greatest gift was the child you gave in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Lord, thank you for giving us your son, your best gift. In Jesus' name, amen.